Marquette Devon Burton, sharing chapters from my upcoming book entitled The Black Box. This chapter is called The Boys and Girls Club. It is July 8, 2001. My mother drops me off at the Boys and Girls Club on Fair Oaks Avenue in Pasadena, California. It is across the street from a Kentucky Fried Chicken, very close to where I grew up near Raymond and Woodbury, near RJ's Liquor Store in the cemetery. The Boys and Girls Club is a place where Pasadena's black youth gather to have fun, play basketball, and look like they are well off with Michael Jordan shoes and faux gold chains as their instrumentality. It is a sunny summer day at the Boys and Girls Club. Wobble walks up and puts his arm around my shoulders. My nig, this little white girl like you, man. We call him Wobble because he is fat and his whole body wobbles as he walks. He is a six foot three, 14 year old. He is a fun loving bully. He has never tried me though. What white girl? Turning us 180 degrees, I see a teenage girl with short blonde hair, freckles and a light blue bandana tied around her hair. She was slightly above average in the face and well above average in the bus. Shyness overtakes her as the two of us observe her. Nigga, you better beat that up. That bitch a flip, Wobble explains. I look at him with a blank expression, not knowing what to do or say. I got you, my nig. Wobble appears to feel as though arranging this rendezvous is as satisfying as partaking in it. He takes his arm from around my shoulder and gives me an embrace common among African-Americans in which you slap hands with your right hand while giving a hug with your left arm. He then struts away like George Jefferson as though he has been selected to undertake a sacred duty. I proceed to the basketball court. I start playing 21 with a group of three other boys. Hardly 10 minutes later, I see Wobble at the basketball gym's side door. Without words, he waves me over with a mischievous smile on his face. I jog over. What's cracking? I inquire. Come here, nigga. I follow him through a doorway that leads us to a hallway. He leans down, putting his arm around me. Nigga, that bitch in the storage closet waiting for your ass right now, nigga. He bobbed his head side to side as he said it. His smile beams. He is pleased with himself for having done a good thing for me. He turns from facing me and points to a door at the end of the hall. I open the door and step in. The hallway lights brighten the dark closet. The girl appears to be two years older than me now that I'm seeing her up close. Without warning, Wobble closes the door behind me. The room goes black. I reached out to touch her just to get a sense of where she is in the darkness. In my hand, I can feel the texture of her jeans and I now feel the fabric of her shirt as she lowers to her knees. She begins unbuttoning my pants. In the darkness, unable to see, I suddenly feel her hot mouth around the head of my penis. Euphoria. Ecstasy has stiffened my entire body, only allowing me to hold the door and the wall for balance. After about 30 seconds, I remember that she has large breasts. I reach down with my right hand to give a squeeze. It is large and full behind her soft padded bra. I give it a squeeze, then a harder squeeze, and as I'm going in for a third squeeze, ah! an uncontrollable groan pours out of my stomach and through my mouth without permission. She continues sucking as I release into her mouth. I place my hand on her forehead to signal, mission complete! A new energy surges through my being. 
I pull my pants up and bust out of the door the way Superman busts out of a phone booth after he went in as Clark Kent. I almost knocked down Wobble and three others who were leaning against the door listening and finally laughing upon my orgasm. I run straight out of the Boys and Girls Club. Beautiful music of my own creation plays in my mind as I continue running and jumping and skipping and running and jumping and running and running until I arrive home three miles later. I did it on pure adrenaline and positive energy. I am home, breathless. Damn, why am I here? I must do that again and again. No, I just left the girl there on her knees. The next day, I wake up with one item on my to-do list. Now back at the Boys and Girls Boys and Girls Club, I take a few laps around the property, not seeing her. I relent, deciding to go play basketball. I went to the front desk and gave them my school ID to rent a basketball, and then I returned to the court. I ended up in a game of 21. We were about halfway through the game when I heard a bunch of people on the sideline laughing, and then I turned around seeing Wobble and the fellas out there who were outside of the door. Look at this nigga! Wobble shouted in the gym as he pointed at me. They all walked over and our game of 21 went on pause. Wobble and I embrace. My nigga, good looking, I think. That bitch be yucking him. And she got big titties, he exclaims. For real though, I confirm. She here today? I try to ask nonchalantly. Nah, I ain't seen her today, Wobble says. Everyone busts out laughing in response. I toss the basketball to the other boys as I surrender the game to them. About six of us climbed to the top of the bleachers and sit down and joke about the whole thing. 30 minutes into our joking, I hear, quit. We have all been there for about 30 minutes joking about the situation and moving on to various other hood topics. When I hear, hey, fool, I turn around to see Corey Williams and Marquette Kelly. I come down from the bleachers and embrace the two of them. Your boy just got some Lewinsky yesterday, I share. What? From who? Marquette Kelly questions. The three of us continue the conversation as we walk to a basketball court and begin shooting around casually while mostly talking. We reminisce on memories from our neighborhood as the three of us are rarely together. Dracar springs into the scene, grabbing a rebound and shooting the ball back up to the hoop from the post. He may be one year older, but he is the size of a large man. He is a very muscular 15-year-old boy, approximately 6 foot 1 inch tall and 190 pounds. At the time, the three of us are all around 5 feet 9 inches tall and no more than 160 pounds. Dracar holds the basketball against the side of his left hip as he walks over. What's bracken, blood? Dracar says, offering his right hand, and we embrace. He then turns to Corey. What up, blood? And embraces him as well. Dracar looks into the eyes of the other Marquette, grimaces and forcefully snatches Marquette's do-rag off of his head, causing him to stumble stumble forward as it happened. Nigga, this my do-rag, he declares while scowling at Marquette Kelly as though the slightest protest would leave him laid out. Dracar, man, stop playing, Marquette Kelly uh, whines as he reaches for his do-rag. Dracar slaps his hand down forcefully. My eyes blaze. I look at Corey like, you ready to fuck this nigga up? Corey's face reads, yep. We both wait for Marquette Kelly to stand up for himself. Sure, Drake Carr is much bigger than Marquette Kelly. We have his back, but he must first show that he has his own back. The second he swings on Drake Carr, Corey and I are going to jump in. Come on, Kells. Snap. Snap. I think he does not snap. 
he got punked. Marquette Kelly again reaches for his do-rag, and Drake Carr takes his large man hand and pushes Marquette Kelly's face back. My mind had already gone into my black box and retrieved the necessary program. Someone takes something from you, swing first. Ironically, Marquette Kelly taught me that lesson the hard way. Drake Carr mean mugs Marquette Kelly one last time. Nigga, you a bitch. That's on bloods. He then struts away with Marquette Kelly's do-rag. Damn, you are a bitch. I look at him thinking. Nigga, you know we had you, but shit, nigga. You got to do some. Niggas can't be fighting your battles like that. Corey laments. I knew that Marquette would snap the same way he did when we were seven years old and he had turned around and unexpectedly popped me in the eye with a stiff punch. However, he did not snap. Fear was overriding him. Fear is a liar. Fear told him that he was destined to lose in the conflict with Drake Carr when the reality is that there was no way he was going to lose because we were going to jump Drake Carr the moment they started fighting. However, we could not start the fight as though it was our own. Drake Carr knew better than to test me. I was ice grilling him the moment he caught the rebound. I know he remembers me from group therapy, though neither of us acknowledge it. We both had parents on drugs and were required to attend family counseling. I never participated in the sessions as I felt it was unfair that I was forced into therapy. I was not on drugs. He would say vulgar things during the group sessions and I would stare at him like I was two seconds from beating his ass, which I was. I refused to collaborate with what others were deciding to do with my life. I was comfortable at my grandmother's and did not want to be going through counseling process to be reinserted back into a life I did not select, back into a life of poverty. The black box. You might think, wow, there are a lot of inappropriate things going on at the Boys and Girls Club. True. However, I can only imagine what would have happened if we were all left to the streets for the summer. The Boys and Girls Club has saved many lives. You may recall that I recommended not dealing with females who are promiscuous. You are right. I made a mistake. With great discomfort, I recount my blunders so that you will not need to bump your head to learn. The Quran accurately warns, perhaps you hate a thing, and that it is, but it is good for you. And perhaps you love a thing, but it is bad for you. Moreover, you attract that which your mind harbors. Drakar approached us looking for someone to bully. Only a fearful person can be bullied. Drakar was not attracted to the aroma. Excuse me. Drakar was attracted to the aroma of Marquette Kelly's fear. Marquette Kelly was running the following prayer on repeat. Please not me. Please leave me alone. And that's exactly why he was the one picked out of the three of us. You must stand up for yourself. If you stand up for yourself, others will stand with you. That's the end of the black box. Bridget, do you have any thoughts, questions, comments on the story or the black box? Yeah, I think you said it in the black box. I was shocked by the stuff going on at the Boys and Girls Club. It's supposed to be a place for kids to go and stay out of trouble. And it, it seems like a lot of bad things happen, including a promiscuous female being there, probably doing more there than she would on the streets. <laughs> yeah, low key, because she probably wouldn't have a location on the streets. Who knows? I can't predict the behaviors of promiscuous women. But uh, you know what? Reading this chapter back when I have to say, like speak about someone getting punked and that person getting punked, their first name is Marquette, like my name. 
it turns my stomach to even have to say it. Like I, I feel ashamed to even say it out loud because I was programmed so strongly against stuff like that, that to even have to speak of someone else who shares my name getting punked, uh, I feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And um, also, I think I probably need to elaborate on that black box because, you know, there was a, a very short time, and I don't know if this is still like the legal process, but being that I was removed from my mother's home because she went on drugs, when I was being reinserted back into her home, when she was quote unquote uh, sober, uh, they require you to go to like group therapy to make sure that you're not fucked in the head, which to me I found to be very disturbing. And as much I'm like, God damn, I wasn't on crack. She was on crack. She needs to be in therapy. Like I'm Gucci. And I, I think the only thing that was traumatic is having to go into poverty after you've lived in the middle class. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, once I was living with my grandmother, I was living in the middle class, you know, multi-bedroom, two-story home, nice neighborhood. And you can get used to comfort very easily. And I think that I need to add into this story how that was a driving force, having comfort taken away. Yeah. And how that pushes you to feel like you deserve that once you've tasted it. So... Thank you for being a part of that chapter. We're going to go on to the next chapter entitled... Learn the enemy, destroy the enemy. From the quiet of 1561 East Topeka Street, Pasadena, California, my mother moves us back into the hood where we started. Down the street from RJ's liquor store, Nick's check cashing, and the cemetery. Back into the hood where I observed the pretty teenage girls swarm the local drug dealers. We now live at 183 East Woodbury Road, Pasadena, California. It is a sunny 90-degree day in Southern California. The Blair High School football team is training together on the field immediately outside the Pasadena Rose Bowl Stadium. Maurice Franklin, a tall, overweight boy, steps out of the jogging line, unstraps his helmet, and projectile vomits in three gushes. It is the summer before my freshman year of high school. Each day of training brings a euphoria. Football's military training style brings a camaraderie and ignites the, the male spirit. The martial sounds of the cadence coming from the guts of young men in their primes makes me feel like a soldier preparing for a glorious war in which I will no doubt be a hero. High school football will be the start of my real life. Head coach Frosto sees my talent. He has placed me in the exact positions I want. Varsity, first string, tailback, defensive end. Fantasy acts as the defensive coach. In truth, he is a Blair High School security guard seeking to supplement his income. He is a five foot eight inch tall white man with a goatee. It is our very first scrimmage game. Tonight is unusually cold. Coach Frosto is not present for unknown reasons. Fennessy is acting in his place. Going against what we have practiced for an entire summer, Fennessy decides not to start me on offense or defense. In fact, he benches me for the entire first half of the game. Why? By chance, I met Fennessy's daughter at Flint Ridge Sacred Heart Academy school dance. I was there with Rod and Damien. I was wearing a yellow dress shirt unbuttoned with a camouflage t-shirt under it that reads, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I introduced myself to a very thin and shapely blonde girl who was with two brunette friends. Jokingly, I say to the beautifully thin blonde, I just want to put you on notice that I noticed you noticing me. She laughs, blushing. Personally, I'm not into black guys, but you're hot. Well, if you're going to try a black guy for the first time, at least you're going for the top of the line, I confirm. 
We laugh and she turns to her friends with an expression of, get a load of this one. Hey, what's up, Damien? Damien says, offering his hand to the pretty brunette with freckles. Rod, says Rod in a deep voice, offering his hand to the last brunette. We then proceed to introduce ourselves to the girls we have yet to meet in the trio. Mar what? The pretty brunette with freckles says. Marquette, I pronounce phonetically. Okay, Freckles replies. Marquette, says Freckles, turning to the other brunette. So where do you guys go to school? The freckled brunette says. We go to Muir. This guy goes to Blair, Rod says, pointing at, at me as the odd man out. Really? My dad works at Blair, says Freckles. Do you know Fennessy? She asks. I give a closed-lipped smile. Mm, yeah, nice to meet you. I say, turning back to focus on the blonde. At the football practice following my encounter with Fennessy's daughter, his attitude toward me became marked by passive aggression. He had done everything he could to hide his white daughter away from the black animals he oversaw at his day job, but one of us slipped over the train tracks and found her. And what's more, she came home excitedly saying, Dad, do you know a kid named Marquette? I sit on the bench replaying this through my mind, angry because I did what I thought was the wisest thing and disengaged when I realized it was Fennessy's daughter. Burton, defensive end, get in there. I don't know who said it. I immediately activate. Finally, let me show this dumb bastard why I start both ways. I've been sitting on the bench for about 20 minutes, watching the mist of my breath blow out in the cold air. I'm on the line of scrimmage, leaning forward, looking to my left at the ball. The ball moves. I overpower their tight end. The ball flies over my head to their receiver. I turn and sprint after him as he had already gotten around our cornerback. As I run, my heart is suddenly I fall down just steps shy of their receiver. I cannot get up. I'm staring straight into a dark sky. I feel tremendous pain in my hip. The play is over. I cannot move my left leg. Quit! Quit playing! I hear a teammate yell. They think I am playing as I fell out with no physical contact. I wave my hand to signal that I need help. I had been benched so long that my body was cold and I tried to perform at peak without being warmed up. I injured my hip. My football career is over. I laid in bed healing for a month. Mostly healed, I step on Blair's campus for the first day of school wearing baggy blue jeans, a white and blue Duke jacket, a white pro club premium t-shirt and a pair of brand new cocaine white Air Force Ones. The rhythm of Blair is different from Elliot. The good of seeing the females built like adult women is countered by the threat of the males being built like grown men. More than half of the school's Latino, about 40% is black, 2% white, and 1% other. How did I end up here walking anonymously through a hall, hall full of kids, all strangers? I was supposed to go to John Muir with my friends from Elliott. John Muir High School and Pasadena High School are the two major high schools in the city. Then there is Blair in the southernmost part of Pasadena next to the freeway. William Blair High School is typically unmentioned when Pasadena high schools are discussed. I was at home one Sunday morning just weeks after graduating from middle school. My mother had gotten off of the phone with Sonia Montano, Danny's mom. Sonia Montano's oldest son had attended John Muir. Michael was popular there, co-founding a pretty boy Mexican clique. Danny and I admire Michael as he is well-dressed and has an attractive girlfriend. Sonia Montano believing that the environments of Elliott Middle School and Muir High School were responsible for the failings of her children, as opposed to her soft parenting. Danny decided, deciding that Danny would go to Blair instead of Muir, she had just finished persuading my mom to send me to Blair as well. Was it for my own good? Not really. 
It was a strategy to make it easier for Danny to swallow the red pill. The narrative would be, Marquette is going to Blair too. My mom got off of the phone trying to sell me on Blair like it was her own idea. Mom, please, I don't want to go to Blair, please. I don't know nobody there. Everybody from Elliot go to Mir, I pleaded. Danny's going to Blair, she retorts. Given the politics of urban schools and the nature of gang culture, having a frenemy at a school of strangers is not enough. Regardless, the die has been cast. My mother enrolled me in Blair High School. So here I am. Square one has become a familiar place. Though the school colors are dark green and bright gold, cream paint covers most of Blair High School. The main building on the campus has a wide hall on the ground floor with doorless outlets on the opposite ends. One end leads to a parking lot while the other end leads to the center of campus. This hallway is the main artery of the school. I surmise that when it would rain and it would push people into the large hall during nutrition and lunch, people developed a habit of loitering there. The school cafeteria lines a portion of the hallway. There's a glass wall allowing one to see into the cafeteria and allowing those in the cafeteria to see into the hallway. Not reflective of the student body, Blair's teaching staff is 60% white, 35% Latino, and 5% other. There are two security guards on campus, one black, one white, Bradford and Fennessey, respectively. There's also an armed police officer, a black bull dyke, and a probation officer, another black butch lesbian. The black box. The human being is required to fight and to work. We cannot thrive without regularly engaging in these two acts. We all have enemies. Some are visible while others cloak their disdain in layers of smiles, indifference, or passive aggression. As you learn in the earlier chapters, there are those who will not like you because of things beyond your control. As my grandmother says, you will always be a nigger to someone. Then there are those who will hate you because of envy or jealousy. Regardless, you should never seek to make enemies into friends. Such an effort will only make you appear weak and needy and will embolden your enemies to attack. Instead, you must accept that your enemies will forever be enemies and must be vanquished or made scared to act on their hatred. Every moment you are not striking at your enemy, you are enabling them to strike at you or to prepare to strike at you. Remember the Swing First chapter. In Phineas's immature, hateful mind, the moment my name came out of his daughter's mouth, he decided to wage war on me. Benching me without cause was the first act in an open war, but it would not be the last. Undoubtedly, the act that undoubtedly that act left me with an injury that prematurely ended an athletic career with endless potential. There are many fantasies around you, small, black-hearted individuals who choose to take offense when you have not done anything to offend them. The challenge in being a kind, even-tempered person is that you do not have it in your heart to try to hurt someone. Though I did not view fantasy as my enemy, he viewed me as his enemy. I now know that if someone views me as their enemy, then I must view them as my enemy. For an enemy will not yield for no reason. They will act against your interests as it is the definition of being an enemy. I fail to take the correct course of action being a naive youth. Surely what I experienced from fantasy was unjust. I'd shown an entire summer of hard work, dedication, and talent only to be benched by fantasy when he had a moment of power. 
when I observed the first instance of Phineas's hate, I should have made every effort to notify all who could advocate for me, my mother, another coach, school administration, etc. Do not go quietly. Always fight for yourself. Never pretend all is well when all is not well. Let your enemies know that you will be relentless. Thoughts on that chapter in Black Box? Yeah, I mean, I guess from an outsider, do you think Phenasy was just racist? Or do you think it was the fact of your kind of, I guess, maybe stature is the word I'm looking for? And how others perceived you at the school? Meaning me having status? Yeah. Well, you know what? It's sometimes hard to separate these kinds of things because a guy like Fennessy was probably a loser in high school. And so you see someone like me who people tend to attract to that could have factored in. I think almost all of us have some level of white supremacy within us, whether we're black, Asian, Latino, what have you. And so I think at that level, him looking at me and feeling envious and jealous, me being a black man, or in that case, a black teenager growing into a man, I think that would rub him the wrong way, meaning that when his daughter brings me up, well, she doesn't he didn't want him her with a black guy. Right. He'd probably want her with a white guy. Um, so I think that, yeah, underlying there probably was a level of white supremacy just because there's no nothing that I did to him. And generally speaking, say I was a white boy who was popular, good looking, strong, fast, athletic. I think he might maybe be proud of me in the way you might be proud of a son instead of feeling like I'm a challenge to him. So, but we'll never know. What we do know is that A, there's no need to complain, but B, you got to strike at your enemies. You can't think that they're going to, you know, let you live. They're going to try to fuck you up. So you got to get them first. Yep. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on the earlier part of the chapter? Well, I guess that one was all about pretty much about that fantasy experience. Huh? Yeah, and meeting the girls at the dance. Yeah, okay. All right. And it's funny, too. When you try to do the right thing, sometimes you still get a negative result, which is to say I feel like a lot of these lessons is sometimes if you're doing the right, the quote-unquote right thing out of fear, then just like the chapter before, Fear is something that is never going to lead to an, a good outcome. So if you're doing the quote unquote right thing because you're scared of a result, not because you're doing the moral thing, but because you're scared of the outcome, fuck it. Go hard. Do what you do. Um, because at the end of the day, fear is never going to lead you to a good place. Yeah. So. Um, all right, folks, I think uh, that's it for today. Uh, we'll catch you up with some new chapters. Do give me your feedback. Obviously, you can uh, send me a direct message if you join www.patreon.com slash the saint and the center. That's www.patreon.com slash the saint and the center all spelled out. Thanks for joining me. Uh, and Bridge has been a, a great part of helping me put together this work. And now we're going on to the next chapter entitled, Not in Front of the Kids. Why are you talking? Miss White yells, causing all the students to look up from their exams. She is in her late 40s. She has a turkey neck, a bulbous nose, protruding blue eyes, dyed red hair, and faint eyebrows that sit atop skin nearly the color of mayonnaise. She is an overweight woman with much of her fat on her arms, stomach, and face. I look up at her with all of the other 10th grade students. 
Why are you talking? She snaps at me. I begin emphasizing you and then returning to my usual monotone stated, quote, you can talk quietly when you're done, end quote. I have finished, so I'm talking quietly. Her face wrinkles into a grimace. She snatches up my Algebra 2 exam, which was facing down. She looks over at reviewing it for completeness. Though this is the advanced mathematics class, Miss White seems to not believe that any one of us could actually be advanced. Placing my exam back on my desk, she barks, He's not finished! Pointing at the boy I was talking to, calmly I point out, You would have to talk to him about that. I followed your directions. I'm finished, so I'm talking quietly. As she walks away, the other boy, Ken, looks up at me, grinning. I smile back at his smile. Miss White believes that Ken is the brightest kid in the class. He looks the part. He has thick glasses and is quieter and less rowdy than the rest of us. He completes all of his work and feigns external compliance. He exists quietly. He is bright. He is only noticeable for noticeably lacking the flavor that colors the other kids in the class. Miss White calls on students at random. If they give the wrong answer, she bellows, Ken! Miss White accused me of cheating on the last quiz. She sometimes gives timed pop quizzes at the start of class. She asks that we bring up the paper after we finish. Today, I finished very quickly, but I didn't want to take up the exam because I've realized that it bothers her when I finish too quickly. So I started working on the worksheet with plans to turn in my quiz when she says time is up. I sit directly in front of Ken as our desks are organized in sets of four. With two desks facing one another, it is a pleasure to sit with Ken as he is bright, good-humored, and mature. She begins grading the quizzes. My quiz was toward the top of the stack as I turned it in after she called, pencils down, time's up. Marquette, come up here, she commands. I walk to her desk. She motions with her index finger for me to lean in. I lean in. She looks me in the eyes. You can admit that you cheated now and I'll give you an F. But if you want to deny it, then I'm going to take this to the principal. I stand straight up and look at her like the hateful fool that she is. I do an about face and walk back to my seat. Now you're going to get two people in trouble, she threatens. The students turn and look at me wondering what she was talking about. I continue half-heartedly on my worksheet, visibly annoyed. In situations like this, I ask myself, what is my goal or, or ideal outcome? How do, I achieve, how do I achieve that? What is the worst case scenario? How can I deal with that? I prefer to finish this uninteresting class with no conflict. She passes back the quizzes. What'd you get? I ask Ken. 95. I nod, my head commending him. I then ask a few others how they scored even though I knew I only had to ask Ken. She then began reviewing the answers to the quiz, asking for volunteers to take her through the steps to the answer. We get to the fifth question. No one else raises their hand. I raise mine. She grants me the floor. Marquette? You accuse me of cheating, but I have the highest score in the class. Who'd I cheat off of? The students turn around to look at me, only to see me looking at her for a response. Since you're so smart, how about you explain the answer to number five? I retort. How about the person I cheated off of tell us the answer to number five? Are you trying to get kicked out of class? Who'd I cheat off of? I say, get out! She explodes. Wow, she really gonna kick him out? Rashida says under her breath to someone sitting at her collection of desks. You're the one that doesn't want to be here. Why don't you leave? I say, ooh, the class reacts. Miss White storms over to my desk. Get out! She screams into my face so vehemently that it causes the fat on her neck to shake. 
An undertone of pink of, is overtaking her face. Make me, I challenge. She rushes to the classroom phone and calls the security, fuming, stopping the entire class. I'll wait till they get your ass out of here, she rages. I measure four minutes and then grab my backpack to make a grand exit. She will not be granted the satisfaction of seeing the school security engage me. All right, y'all, I'm out. Holla at your boy, I say walking out, giving daps, high fives, and handshakes. I go downstairs to head to the parking lot. Walking through the main hallway toward the parking lot, I hear, Marquette! I turn around to see Brittany, a moderately attractive, unusually tall 16-year-old girl whom I went to middle school with. I stop. She walks over to me. Tusi want to talk to you. I smirk in disinterest. I walk with Brittany to the opposite direction of the parking lot. Tusi is there. She is a 16-year-old brown-skinned girl shaped like a pear. Brittany walks away, leaving the two of us to talk. Nyree gave you my number. Why you ain't call me? I take a class with Nyree, one of her sisters. Nyree is as ghetto as Tusi, but clearly more intelligent. You go with Terrell. Are you serious? I say. I don't go with Terrell. I told you that, she pleads. Yeah, okay. I say sarcastically as I turn to walk to my car. Marquette, you gonna call me? I don't like you, I say frustratedly. That's because you a faggot, yells Tusi. Her name is Chanel, but she goes by Tusi. She has a fat booty that shakes when she walks. Just because I don't like you? Oh, okay, I rebuttal. Keep talking shit. My brother come down here and beat your gay ass, Tusi yells. Lured by the aroma of drama, Brittany has returned. CK Boo will beat your ass, Brittany declares. She is involved with C.K. Boutusi's brother, who is much older than all of us. He is a legend in the hood, a very active gang member involved in all variety of crime and even more humorous acts like running over one of his enemies in a car. He could come down here and get jumped if he want to, I warn. Yeah, okay, faggot, Tusi yells. I'll be happy to smash Tusi. However, she is involved with a gangster that goes by the name Relly Deuce. His government name, Terrell, is rarely used. Tusi claims that she does not like him, but it's common knowledge that they are involved. Regardless, every day she throws herself at me. There are two reasons I keep her at a distance. One, respect. Terrell and I are not friends, but we have many common ties. Two, neither of us will back down. Tusi is no Helen of Troy, and I am no fool. I get into my car and turn over the key. My favorite song starts blasting, Dipset Anthem by Joel Santana. I close my eyes and bow my head, taking it in. The beat starts vibrating my body. My head bobs to the hypnotic booming. I drive off with my music blaring. Now I see death around the corner. Gotta stay high while I survive in the city where the skinny niggas die. I drive a block and pull over on the right. I hear tires screeching as a white Pontiac slams on its brakes and pulls as it pulls behind me, nearly rear-ending me. I swing my head around to look out of my rear-view window. This is surely some beef, and it's for me. They definitely have found the right person. This is not a mistake. The car's windows are limo-tinted. I cannot see who is delivering me this beef. It is probably for something Crazy Rob did in the hood when I was with him. Fuck it, let's go. Nope, in the city where the skinny niggas die, four, five, send me on they side. In a guttural tone, the devil on my shoulder orders, grab it, make these pussies bleed. My switch is instantly flipped. A crazed look overtakes my, overtakes my expression, fueled by a cocktail of ghetto teenage male impulsivity and gangster music. I turn to reach under my passenger seat for the problem solver. 
Yeah, let's catch this body, the devil says. As I turn to reach under the seat, I see the kids in my after-school program running around, playing and frolicking. Suddenly, I can hear their distant laughter and joy over the music. Not in front of the kids, God whispers. My car is still running and there's nothing in front of me. I can easily punch the gas and drive off. I turn off my car and quickly open my driver's side door so I can run up on this pussy and tear his head off. With perfect timing, a black man had sprinted to, the, to position himself between the door and where I was still sitting in my car. He got there before I could get out. I push his midsection to force him back and get out of my car. My forehead is, is at his mouth. Both of our fists are bald. It's war time. Blood, they say you active, he says. I appreciate the compliment because I'm not a gangster. I'm a hustler. So being active is not something I've really been known for. Crazy Rob, on the other hand, is very active. Nigga, I'm active to the third power, I say. This is a catchphrase that Crazy Rob typically says before knocking out someone's lights. Who you, nigga? I question. I heard you have my name in your mouth, he says. He is a black male of about 20 years of age, muscular and build with a few visible gang tattoos. I cannot place the origins of this particular beef as between my own activities and those of my friends, there are a lot of things that could have sparked this. What they call you, I ask. You have my name in your mouth. You know, he says. If I can punch him in the jaw while he's talking, it'll be easier to break it. So I ask him one more thing to get him to start talking before I throw this right hook. Oh, you scared to say your name? I taunt. I swiftly then lean back to get leverage for this punch. Boom! I get hit in the side of the face. Not by him. As I duck into my car, I see a tall husky gangster named D-Fats run back to the passenger side of the white Pontiac. He had walked around the passenger side of my car while I was exchanging words and sucker punched me in the split second before I could throw my right hook. I rise up out of my car with my weapon. They are already in their car speeding off. Fuck! I put my weapon back and start walking toward Blair High. There is an oncoming mob. I recognize them as they get closer. Tusi in front of the school on the chirp talking big shit about how she gonna get CK Boo to come down here. I was like, yeah, okay, blood says Crazy Rob as he embraces me. We got you, man, Conform confirms Fat Corey. On everything, says Damien. That nigga like 20 ain't no fair one, says Kevin Williams. We came straight over here, bro, says Willie. There are 18 young men here ready to ride for me. Yeah, man, they already came, I announce. You smashed that nigga? Willie says, excited to hear the story. I ain't even know who it was, bro. I got out of the car ready to fade that old ass nigga. I was about to bomb on him. And then I got blindsided by defats. I explained. They tried to jump you, my nigga? Asked Crazy Rob. Nah, I just took that Scooby-Doo snack and then they ran to the whip and peeled off. You sneak a nigga though, you gotta knock him out. That shit was so weak, I'm still going to work, I say. The homies laugh. Shit, you look good, nigga, Willie confirms. Hey, good looking, y'all, I say. I embrace each soldier individually. I return to my car to retrieve my staff shirt from my back seat. I hear, quit, as I walk into the Allendale Elementary School gate. I see Cheney, the school janitor, about 30 yards away. He is a mentor, a real low-key hustler. He has the nerve to come to work as a janitor every day in a different pair of mint-conditioned Jordans. He is the neighborhood weed man and is making a killing, but still holds down a square gig to stay under the radar. Nigga, what happened? He asks. Oh, you saw that? I ask. Yeah. 
He says, that was nothing. A little Scooby snack over a bitch. Told a little bitch I wasn't fucking with her. And she started a little drama. I'll take care of it, though. I say nonchalantly. <laughs> shit, you wild, Quet. Cheney says, you think the kids seen that shit? I ask, hell nah. Because they'll already be over here if they did. He says, you right. I say, you know you got to tighten up now, right? He says with a serious look on his face. I nod my head. I appreciate the reminder. It is a miracle that none of the kids saw me get ambushed in plain view of their play area. Work is uneventful. I drive home feeling anxious that I have to go to the Young Women's Christian Association tonight to deliver my poem for the contest I won. I have it memorized at least. My mom puts on a black dress with an underlying sparkle created by specks of glitter throughout the fabric. I'm wearing slacks, a dress shirt, and a necktie. I take one last look at my face in the mirror to make sure there's no swelling anywhere from that sucker punch. I'm in good condition. My mother and I walk into the venue. We look around. It is filled with middle and upper class white women aged 30 and older. We're the only two black persons here. As I begin to feel self-conscious, I see Mrs. Lopez Mades warm smile walking quickly toward us. We sit in the designated seats and the event begins shortly after. Two white kids from private schools, the winners of the elementary and middle school categories, present their, per- their poems first and second, respectively. Now I present you with our high school first place winner, Marquette Burton of William Blair High School. I walk up to the podium. The room is silent and everyone looks interested. I would be too. Random public school black kid wins the award. I would be curious to hear what he has to say. Or at least that's how I'm self-talking myself to get this done. My heart pounds my chest as though it has too long been a prisoner. Nervousness stiffens my body. Doubt ricochets through every inch of my mind. I look to the audience, relieved to be blinded by the lights focused on me. The first stanza came out as a whisper. The microphone shared my whisper with the entire audience. Does peace end where war begins? Or is peace war's ultimate end? Anxiety brings a raw, desperate quality to my voice. I cannot see the audience, but I can feel the braille of their emotions. I close the poem, questioning intently. Does peace begin where man ends? Or did peace end where man began? Applause roars forward from the crowd as though they had been impatiently waiting to shower me with my due. End of the chapter. As I said, we always have a black box in which we kind of digest what was said in that chapter. This is one of our longer black boxes. Let's get into it. Firstly, please appreciate the duality that I am beginning to live and the psychological and sometimes physical battering that ghetto youth suffer in a single day. In my case, most days I did not have the time to think over it or lick my wounds. I had to be mentally tough and carry on. The entire day was spent at war with people in mental and material poverty while my evening was spent being awarded for a poem on peace by white upper class women. I'm able to accept this existence because my grandmother raised me knowing that life is not fair. Something, sometimes you do all the right things and still get pain. Did I cheat in math class? No, I did not. In fact, I've never cheated in any class. I've never cared enough about grades to make such an effort. However, in this case, I actually got a perfect score. Instead of being rewarded, I was kicked out of class. Then a girl smitten with me, unable to accept that I repeatedly expressed disinterest, set me up to get my ass kicked. Then after being sucker punched, I had to go and do something I have never done before without any coaching. 
it was quite a day. But there are many days like that. I did not complain to anyone. Most human beings allow their emotions to override their intelligence. In the case of Miss White, she had such a deep disdain for me that she could not accept that I was bright. At some level, I have to understand her position. Very few children that she taught were intellectually gifted. Given that most individuals are ruled by their emotions, a wise person addresses emotions before engaging someone's rational side. Unlike Finnessy, which is someone I mentioned in a previous chapter, Miss White was open to being charmed. I could have turned around the relationship. However, as a 10th grader, I was not interested in being the bigger person. The peace poem made me a poet. With this poem, I earned my first academic award in high school. Mrs. Lopez Modest reawakened for a moment the intellectual, intellectually curious boy I was in elementary school. I'm splitting further in two. One side of me, an emotionless, emotionless, shrewd criminal hustler. The other side, a proper, well-mannered, intelligent boy seeking more. How many other drug dealers won a poetry contest this year? Probably not many. What I was... That moment that I was ambushed is in conflict with what I was becoming as I presented my poem that night. Mindset and imagination are the only anchors that we have. This is the beginning of me realizing that my mind may be special. Bridges, did you have any thoughts, questions, comments on that chapter of Black Box? It was definitely a rough day, and I, I definitely feel for you how you had to go from being accused of cheating to winning an award and having all those different emotions that you talked about. Mm, yeah. Kind of seemed like a lot psychologically for anyone to deal with, especially an adolescent. Correct. Yeah. A yeah. lot. Next chapter entitled Thought Before Speech. In my 11th grade year, the school hired a new principal, Mr. Baccia. His ambition is to make Blair an international baccalaureate high school. He is a part of the state of California taking over the school for its low performance on state exams. School uniforms are one part of the many changes being implemented. Fat Corey and I leave our second period class and head downstairs. We are walking to a collection of benches where our people congregate when we are interrupted by Quet! We both turn 180 degrees. A shorter light-skinned boy jogs over and embraces us. I do not know the kid by name, but we've hooped together and exchanged jokes on the ball court. Them niggas Butter and John and Brent speaking up on you and Rob. He and Fat Corey wait for a fierce reaction. Stoically, like my grandmother, I ask. what they say? They said y'all be bullying niggas, exclaims the messenger boy with his eyebrows raised. I know that he knows the consequences of sharing this information. I also know that he knows the consequences of lying and that he is therefore telling the truth. Bullying niggas? I say, taking in the accusation, what they mean? I don't know. That's They was just by the gym talking about y'all niggas think y'all run the school and that y'all be bullying niggas, he stated matter-of-factly. I've never in my life spoken these kids' names. I've never wronged them or anyone they associate with. Yet they are casting stones at me. I never bullied a nigga in my life, I declare in my usual monotone. I do not like bullies. I also do not like cowards. By the definition I was raised with, bullying is a rare occurrence in a ghetto. Even the so-called bullies get bullied. Life promises that you will have to fight. Life does not promise that the fight will be fair. Bullying is when a male is imposing on a female physically, or someone is picking on a person too old or young to defend themselves. 
or one is imposing on someone significantly less intellectually capable or so much smaller that it is nearly impossible for the smaller person to win. All three of them were speaking up, I ask. Yep, he confirms. I ask as I do not want an innocent person to suffer, but he confirmed that all three are guilty, so all three must take responsibility for their backbiting. In Pasadena, we call it speaking up. Speaking up, in some cases, can warrant capital punishment. As Fat Corey and I continue toward the benches, I see the homie Willie Allen walking toward me. Observing my expression, he jokes, how many niggas you finna kill? He came up and gave me dap and started walking in my direction. My thoughts were piercing my poker face. About three, I reply. Willie is a fat, pretty boy who wears prescription glasses. He would get a lot more girls if he lost 50 pounds. He wears large, fake diamond-studded earrings, typical of the African-American male in our generation. He has a short, well-groomed curl, one of the best I have seen. He is often joking and very easygoing. His mother is strict. He does not get into a lot of trouble, but is still down to ride for the right cause. John, Butter, and Brent been speaking up, I share. What? Them niggas what they say, Willie said excitedly. He is an honest boy of integrity, the type to not be pushed around or just go with the flow. Making eye contact to see his perspective, I respond. They said me and Rob be bullying niggas. He laughs sincerely and then shares, shit, that nigga Rob a thug, but he mostly be fucking with niggas that say they bang and shit. I didn't seen you save a couple niggas lives. We all chuckle. He follows up. What's the move? By this point, we had stopped walking midway through the hall. Willie nods his head as I speak in whispers. As we talk, a few homies join the conversation. Suddenly the bell rings, ending our short nutrition break. I carried on talking with the fellas for about two more minutes, and then I headed to my third period health class. Mr. Perlstein walks around handing back our dietary pyramid assignment. This assignment was interesting to me as health is important to me, so I worked really hard on it. An F. I shake my head and lean my face down toward my desk. I'm angry because I know why he put this false grade on me. Two days ago, when Mr. Perlstein's back was turned, a Latino boy named Eddie who sits a few desks away, called out, Mr. Pearlstein, a fag, in a deep voice. Mr. Pearlstein spun around with a fierce look in his eyes, focused on me. What did you say? He screams. What? That wasn't me, I say with restrained anger in my face. I am shocked. Even when the class erupts in chaos, I've always been attentive and respectful the whole year. I've never once disrespected Mr. Pearlstein. Why am I the first suspect? Get out! He screams. We do not snitch, so I don't consider saying it was Eddie. No one said anything. I grabbed my backpack and walked out. As I walked out of the classroom, it dawned on me that regardless of my conduct, Mr. Pearlstein did not see me as an individual. He saw me as a nigger, an indiscernible person from any other nigger that he was being paid to oversee. Despite my English being more proper and me always treating him with respect and civility, he viewed it as an act, not really who I am, a performed identity. And in fact, the intelligence he sees in me, he views as a threat, which is probably why his psyche picked me out of the pack of niggers as the culprit, even though the sound of the voice came from a different side of the room. 
yesterday when I came to class and asked him to sign a slip allowing me to miss his class for a field trip to a college, he refused to do so. That day I went to Coco Williams, a school counselor, a lesbian, and explained the truth of the situation. And she said, I can't help you. Consequently, today, seeing this fake F grade, I am not surprised that this educator, one who denied me a college trip that could shape my future, would also take retribution on my grades. I will not be returning to this class. What feels like days later, the bell finally rings. Next is fourth period math. I do not have to worry about the teacher cheating me. Correct math answers are incontrovertible. Looking through the window of the classroom door, I could see the homies outside waiting for me to get out of class. When I came out, Crazy Rob was the first of the five to greet me. We all speak for a few minutes and then head downstairs for lunch. As the six of us progress down the stairs, all chatting and laughing, Nigga, you a bitch! Willie hollers at Edward. We turn for Edward's response. Boy, I'll beat your ass! Edward snaps back. Upon reaching the bottom of the stairs, the two push the double doors open and bring their disagreement center stage into the main hall. The hall is filled with two-way traffic. The increasing volume of their insults causes all of the other voices in the main hall to go silent. Now with a spotlight on them, they walk in chest to chest. Edward gives Willie a hard shove. Both Edward and Willie are friends of mine, so we are going to make sure this is a civil affair. I quickly step in the middle as they hurl spitting mad insults at one another. I shout waving toward the restroom. Take this shit to the bathroom. Take this shit to the bathroom, the homies echo. These are moments of ambivalence for us. We all love a good fight, but would prefer that a good fight not be between the homies. Still, we let it go on as we lack the maturity to stop it. So instead of stopping it, we put rules on it. We ensure that no one jumps in and that no one gets stomped out. So if someone hits the ground, we hold off the aggressor while we stand up the other person. We also allow people to quit. All of this being antithetical to the rules of engagement when one of us is fighting a stranger or an enemy. In that case, there are no rules. Crazy Rob and I lead the mob, led the mob as it poured into the bathroom. Everyone re-encircles Willie and Edward. Sock that nigga, a voice hollers. To enter this very large boy's bathroom, one must enter an outer door, walk five steps, and then enter another door. Maurice yells to me, they in here. He is proud. Maurice is a trusted friend. He has been to my home and met my family. He is a bright, humorous, easygoing, well-dressed young man with a gut. He has short, black, wavy hair that he regularly brushes during the school day. His large cheeks and dimples give him a wholesome look. I turn to Corey, pointing. Block the outer door! Fat Corey and another boy go to block the outer door to limit the number of rats and snitches in the bathroom. I then have Marcus and Maurice block the inner door so that no one can leave. Willie and Edward are steaming mad. They had stopped pushing one another and stepped back with both of their fists balled. Maurice yells over the crowd, They in here! Willie and Edward stop squaring off. They put their arms around one another's shoulder. They turn and start facing Brent, Butter, and John with a smile on their face. The three of them followed the antelope herd into the lion's den. The bathroom is packed to capacity. Crazy Rob steps into the center stage. Let that nigga Marquette through, Maurice bellows. Let my nigga through, Crazy Rob commands. I step into the center and turn my eyes to the accused. I wonder what Brent, Butter, and John, or any of the 50 or so kids here to watch Willie and Edward fight, are thinking. Uneasiness saturates the air. Haunting voices from the crowd start to cause further discomfort among those who were not in the know. 
Uh-oh. You ain't talking now. Uh-oh. Speak up now. The three stooges are still not aware that they are the marks. Only a selected six of the nearly 50 students here are privy to the plan. 44 hearts beat uneasily. My people force Brent, Butter, and John inside the squared circle. I look at these fools the way Sonny looked at the bikers in the Bronx Tale movie. Now yous can't leave. As soon as it was clear as to whom the architects of the moment were and who the losers were, everyone in the bathroom aligned against Brent, Butter, and John. It is not that the three do not have friends. Sometimes alliances end when war begins. John is a tall, slim boy of dark complexion. He has a long nose and eyebrows that set high above his eyes. His eyebrows are short, and his upper lip is noticeably thinner than his bottom. He often walks around with an untied black do-rag sitting atop his head. Crazy Rob is in his zone. I have seen him in many times. Y'all bitch-ass niggas was speaking up on me, huh? Speaking up on me and the homie, huh? He says in a remarkably calm voice while holding pure fury in his eyes. Brent, Butter, and John begin backing up, but the mob pushes them toward that which they are avoiding. I announce, waving my hand in the air to signal that people stop pushing them. Nah, we gonna give them a fair one. I want each of them laid out fair and square. Rob's spirit is inhabiting the mob. They back up the three against the cement wall. In front of the wall from left to right stands John, six feet, two inches tall. Brent, five feet, ten inches tall. Butter, who is six feet, one inch tall. Crazy Rob has his forehead to John's chin, shouting a litany of threats. I'm in front of Butter. Rob is ready to get to work, but first, I must announce their crimes. So both they and the audience know that this is not a random act of violence. This is punishment for a very clear violation of ghetto law. You was talking shit. Ain't think I was going to hear about it, huh? I say staring up at butter. I feel adrenaline and testosterone surging through my body, fortifying me. They begin their denials, but the jury of their peers finds them guilty. The voices of the jurors raise up. Nigga, you lying. I heard you talking shit about Quet. More witnesses yell testimonies and sentences. Fuck that nigga up, Quet. Crazy Rob is berating John as he stands in front of him with his hands bald. Speak up now, suggested a random voice from the mob. Home bloods, I'll give you a fair one. Crazy Rob roars so everyone can hear it. You a bitch, he yells at John with such force that spit comes out of his mouth. Rob is staring straight into John's eyes from just centimeters in front of his face. Do some, Rob invites. The charges have been made public. Testimony was given. Now... It is time to carry out punishment. I'm going to give you the fair one, I assure. I take two steps back and take off my shirt. It is ass-kicking time, and I'm getting into my ass-kicking uniform again. I'm a bully. I'm a bully. Rob screams hysterically. He is losing it. Like a running back, John dashes to the right, pursuing the exit. Brent's eyes open wide, seeing his friend prioritizing self-interest. In John's absence, Crazy Rob plants a knockout punch against Brent's jaw. As Brent was standing with his back to a cement wall, the punch knocked his head against the surface, dropping him like a sack of potatoes. The wolves behind me rushed after John the moment he bolted. The other half of the pack made quick work of butter, stomping him in a pissy corner next 
to the urinal. John is getting beaten up closer to the exit that he had no chance of ever reaching. Maurice, who was holding the door, caught John with an overhand right, which was followed by a myriad of punches and kicks from the mob. Brent, despite getting his lights turned out, probably got off easy because no one touched him as he was out cold from Rob's one-hitter quitter. Corey came in after the melee was in full swing, announcing, Security coming! Security! Where's my shirt? Where's my shirt? I holler as I flow out of the bathroom with a throng of adolescents. Marcus, whom we call Gumby due to his braces and his overly visible gums and small teeth, pushes his hand forward, putting my shirt on my chest. I put it back on. Finnessy, a security guard, was right outside of the second door and physically grabbed me the moment my shirt was back on. I'm not worried. No one will talk, and even if they do, I'm happy to take a short vacation. Bradford, the African-American security guard, grabs Crazy Rob. Everyone else scatters. Bradford is in his mid-40s, like Gentry from Elliot. He is in the I'm just doing my job business. Most of the students show him respect. Finnessy is a 40-year-old white guy who mimics the speech patterns of the African-American students. Crazy Rob and I look at each other as we are being forcibly escorted to the dean's office. It goes without saying, we had not seen, heard, or done anything. The moment we sit down in Dean Black's office, he goes into his good cop routine, seeking to get a confession out of us so that he can issue a long-term suspension. We both went Helen Keller on him, knowing that nothing we can say will benefit us. After a couple of minutes, to my surprise, Crazy Rob speaks. I was involved. Marquette wasn't there, though. I just saw him outside, Crazy Rob confesses. Being on court-ordered probation, it is in his best interest to concede something to the dean. He did not snitch, and he made his best move. All right, fighting. That's a weak suspension, Dean Black says without emotion as a bureaucrat just following policy. With a smirk of satisfaction on his face, the dean turns to me. How about you? He has no leverage with me. The staff and most of the teachers regularly treat us like we are beneath them. I will never cooperate with these people. Marquette, you can play games if you want to. But we know you did it, and I can guarantee you that one of your little buddies is going to drop the dime on you, challenges the dean. Actually, they will not say a word, not after what they witnessed happened to John, Butter, and Brent. I don't play games. I drop P.E., I respond. Crazy Rob leans his face down into his hands and then turns his face to the right to look at me, trying not to laugh aloud. Oh, well, you ain't going to have to worry about P.E. or any class. I'm about to graduate today? I say in a naive tone, you yire rail. Crazy Rob laughs. You about to be suspended, informs the dean. Suspended? I exclaim with an exaggerated concern in my voice. You damn right, he says angrily. Standing up, I say, I'm not supposed to be at school if I'm suspended, so I don't want to break no rules, so I'm going to get out of here. I say as I get up to head out, sit your ass down. The dean shouts, crazy Rob erupts in laughter. We hear a knock at the door. Yeah, the dean asks. Finnessy opens the door slowly, waving the dean over. You're suspended for two weeks, he says, looking at me in the eye without blinking. I was held in in in-school detention until the end of the day and then released. Nigga, the dean wanted to beat your ass. Crazy Rob booms into his landline home phone following his statement with laughter. That nigga was hot. I laughed. The school scheduled a this can never happen again meeting with me, Crazy Rob, Maurice, Brent, Butter, John, and all of our legal guardians. As a result of me being suspended for two weeks while everyone else was suspended for one week, everyone had to wait until my suspension was over to have the meeting. My mother and I were the last to enter the room. 
It is a small conference room with large tables in it. Maurice and his adopted parents are here. They are the age of my grandmother. Crazy Rob is sitting next to his mother. Everyone in the hood calls his mom, Little Mama. She is five feet, two inches with those glasses that make your eyes look bigger. On the opposite side of the tables are Brent, Butter, and John. John is here with his father. Butter, Butter is here with his mother. He has recovered well. Brent is here with his mother, a gorgeous black woman of no more than 29 years. She has a caramel complexion, a flat stomach, and a short Holly Berry-style haircut. I look at her and then look at Rob and then look at her and then look at, back at Rob. He looks at her and then looks at me and opens up his eyes wide to signal his agreement. Dean Black, Bradford, and Finnessy are present. My mother and I fill the two seats next to Rob and his mom. My mother yells and curses in our household, but in the presence of school officials, she becomes a conflict-avoidant groveler. Dean Black opens the meeting. This can never happen again. We are having this meeting because this is unacceptable at our school, and we want to be clear that we won't tolerate this. Interrupting Brent's mom forwards, I got a question. Why we got to wait two weeks after the shit happened to address this? My son had to go back to school not feeling safe with the same goddamn kids that jumped him. Ain't nobody jumped that nigga, Maurice says under his breath, clearly enough that everyone turned to look at him. Brent's mom's pretty mouth falls open in shock. We had to wait for all the students to return from suspension to have the meeting because suspended students aren't allowed on campus grounds, the dean says with a sympathetic look on his face. If they suspended, then how the fuck was Brent telling me that he was seeing them at school then? Brent's mom explains. Maurice and Robert were suspended for one week and Marquette was suspended for two weeks, so we had to wait for him, the dean states, making unbroken eye contact with Brent's mom. Marquette a good boy. I know Marquette since he was a baby. He don't get into trouble, so what Marquette do that was so bad that he was suspended for two weeks and everybody else got suspended for one? Little Mama says with an attitude. I look at my mother to see if this question struck her. Little Mama is a supportive, effective black woman. I am sitting next to a statue with moving eyes that tracks each speaker, but otherwise exercises its right to remain silent and ineffective. Well, everybody admitted to what they did, and Marquette wanted to act like he didn't have any part in it. The dean retorts with a smirk on his face. I was suspended for fighting. I did not fight. I state, looking the dean in his eyes. Bullshit! Finnessy interrupts. He is accustomed to getting eight hours of pay per day for bullying unprotected black kids. However, at the moment, he is around black mothers who would not tolerate that. The mother's faces show repugnance at his outburst. The dean tries to force his face to conceal his embarrassment. What could the dean say now? He allows Finnessy to use vulgar language with impunity all other times. Ignoring Finnessy's emotionalism, I look at the dean. You suspended me for two weeks because you couldn't force me to say I did something I didn't do. You were mad. Finnessy jumps back in. You can tell the truth because these boys and no one they know will lay a hand on you. I promise you that. He shows the kind of man he is in making a promise that he and the whole room knows he cannot keep. He continues. What happened in that bathroom? He implores John, Brent, and Butter. Crazy Rob is glaring at them. Silence. John? Finnessy calls on him to speak up. Maurice interjects. Look, I already told you. Me and Rob were in the bathroom. John tried to run. I hit him. Then I hit Brent. Rob interrupts, unable to hide his pride. 
What about you? Finnessy accuses looking at me. I ain't hit nobody. I stay flatly. John, Finnessy says, turning to him, who hit you? Maurice, John confirms. That's it? Well, a, a lot of other people, but I couldn't really tell. I was getting jumped. That's the only person I saw. Brent, Finnessy says, unintelligible words come out of Brent's mouth along with drool. We all frown in surprise. His jaw is noticeably swollen, but we did not realize that it is wired shut. Poetic justice that his mouth is fixed so that it does not get him in any more trouble. He resigns to just pointing at Crazy Rob. His mother's eyes blaze at Crazy Rob. Nobody else hit you. He put his shoulders and hands up to indicate, I don't know. How could he have known? It was lights out after that first punch. Did Marquette hit you? Finnessy says, seeking to pin something on me. Brent looks at me and shakes his head to indicate no. Butter? None of them hit me. It was, uh, it was just a bunch of other people. He states indifferently. Marquette didn't hit you, Finnessy suggests. You don't like Marquette. We can all see that. But how in the hell y'all gonna suspend somebody and ain't got no goddamn evidence? And baby, I'm a deal with mine. Robert ass gonna get it. But I just don't know what kind of investigation y'all asses done had when the one who ain't hit nobody got suspended the longest. Clearly y'all don't like Marquette. All y'all, asserts little mama. Yeah, that's something y'all would have to explain to me too, Brent's mom adds. Because it seems like there should be a hell of a lot more people in here if my son got jumped and the people that hit her child, gestures to Butter's mom, ain't even in here. Tempers start to boil, but because my mother is failing to advocate for me, my wrongful suspension is not rectified. The meeting eventually ends with us all pledging that it would never happen again and that there are no hard feelings. The truth is that it will not happen again because these boys now know that there are real consequences for throwing dirt on our names. As my mother and grandmother used to say, if you ain't got nothing good to say, don't say nothing at all. After the messenger boy shared the news about Brent, Butter, and John speaking up, I had formulated a plan. As I shared the plan with Willie in the hallway, I observed Edward South nearby. Edward, let me holla at you. Edward is fairer than all of us with his complexion taking on a yellowish tone. He has dark circles around his eyes and is surprisingly has a surprisingly skinny neck for an overweight kid. Most of his weight sits on his gut. Edward is reasonably athletic and has a quick wit. Edward nodded his head deeply two times and then gave me dap like a soldier pledging to carry out orders. Maurice, I beckoned. As Maurice approached, Edward walked away shaking his head. This nigga, man, this nigga a mad scientist. Willie and Edward fading up at lunch, Maurice calls out as he walks by the lunch line where Brent, Butter, and John are standing. He stops and gives them dap. Nigga, that lunch is going down. Them two fat niggas is throwing them in the boys' bathroom. Oh, my mama, that nigga Willie gonna get smashed, Maurice shouts in an animated voice, bobbing his head as he said each word. Brent, Butter, and John looked at one another with hungry smiles, excited for the prospect of a good heavyweight bout. Butter gave Maurice another dap for show. Don't let them fat niggas start swinging before we get there, John added jokingly. Maurice returned from the cafeteria to the spot in the main hall where our team was gathered. He reported that the trio would be joining us for the Willie versus Edward match. I spoke to our group of five collaborators. Don't tell nobody shit. Don't tell Rob shit. I'ma tell him, I ordered. Gumby joked, 
Y'all niggas better not say shit or else y'all catching my fade. We all laughed. I embraced everyone individually and then made my way to class. The homies were waiting for me outside of my class before the bell even rang. I saw them through the window in the door. When I came out, Crazy Rob was the first to greet me. Blood, you trying to do some dirt? What it do? These niggas ain't saying shit. Rob looked at me with excited, questioning eyes. Nigga, I want to see your ass running around talking about blood. I'm acting to the third power. I said, mocking his strut and hand mannerisms. He laughed briefly, still waiting for me to say something of consequence. Brent, Butter, and John was speaking up, I share. His eyes opened wide in disbelief. On who? On your bitch ass? We all had a brief laugh. On your bitch ass, I said, landing a finger on his chest. Blood, what? He belted out in indignation that such a pussy ass bitch had his name in their mouths. Speaking quickly as he turned around to storm down the stairs. Blood, I'm going to smash all three of them right now. The homies grabbed him before he could make it down the stairs. He really would have went and laid knuckles across all of their faces without any help or thought. They were speaking up on both of us. They said we'd be bullying niggas. I said in a smooth, goldy tone. I'm going to show him a bully, he growls. A smile spread over his face as I dictated the plan. Wrapping up the details of the plan, I stated, Fat Corey going to let us know when all three of them niggas come in the second door. Rob's face turned serious all of a sudden and turned as he turned his face to me and the homie shaking his head as he shouted, On bloods, this nigga need to be in jail. Our group of six burst into laughter. We head downstairs toward the main hallway. As we approached the bottom of the stairs, Maurice busted into the green double doors at the foot of the stairs with sweat on his brow and a smile on his face. I told them niggas, they got their food and they right there in the cafeteria, he reported. Nigga, you a bitch! Willie barked at Edward. Boy, I'll beat your ass, Edward roared. The two pushed the double doors open and brought their disagreement center stage into the main hall. The volume of their insults started turning up and they began shoving one another. Our cohort of collaborators encircled them with the usual antics that accompany a pre-fight show. I noticed John, Butter, and Brent joined the crowd. I turned to Corey and gave him a closed-lipped smile. A crowd gathered. I shouted, waving toward the bathroom. Take this shit to the bathroom. My people began directing the crowd to the bathroom. I felt like a composer watching a talented musician play the notes that I wrote. Crazy Rob and I led the mob as it poured into the bathroom. End of chapter. Um, now we're going to go into the black box. It's a moderately sized black box. The black box. Reputation is to be guarded. It is easier to maintain a strong reputation rather than repairing a damaged reputation. In this case, the three basketball players were deriding Rob uh, and my reputation and therefore sowing the seeds of rebellion. It is always easier to do away with a problem in its infancy before it grows. In most high school, the athletes or the jocks are the popular kids. However, in an urban high school, the hustlers and the gangsters are often as popular, if not more popular. Importantly, we see that the alliances can only be verified in times of war. When those three backbiters were backed up against that wall, all of a sudden they had no friends. Further, as the master Sun Tzu writes, victory is to he who is superior in pre-engagement calculations. Certainly, I was the architect of a very strong plan which would serve to not only stop those individuals from backbiting, but also was a strong bulwark against future instances of backbiting from anyone else. Be mindful that de facto power is greater than de jure power. In the meeting that occurred after the incident, the security guard made a promise of protection to the three basketball players. However, we all knew that was a promise that he could not keep, as I was the most powerful person in that room 
the one who could create real consequences for violations of the laws that mattered to me. We have all heard our elders say, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. We would all be better off if we lived by that statement. Speak positivity. Bridget, what are your thoughts, questions, comments on that chapter? How does that strike you? I think the biggest thing is this all came from them calling you guys bullies, but them talking about you guys behind your back and backbiting is just as bad as so-called bullying that they're accusing you of. That's essentially bullying you Ah, and putting dirt on your name. That's a really good point, right? Because bullies do put people down. So they were essentially almost hypocritical. That's a good point. And I can't even lie that, you know, at a high level, I still believe in and live by these values. I still really want to speak positivity about people. And if I do speak something that is less than positive, I'm ready to go the whole mile. You know, like if I was Brent and my jaw got wired shut, I'd be fine with that. You know, like I wouldn't be stressed out like, oh, you know, I shouldn't have said that. Like, no, no, that's what I signed up for. Um, So, yeah, that that was a curious episode in life, which... I imagine probably taught them a life lesson. (laughs) Next chapter entitled Statute of Limitation. It is Saturday afternoon. Patrick, Damien, Rod, and I sit in Patrick's basement chatting and having a laugh. So we in the store. I'm asking the lady questions, getting her to show me some stuff to distract her. This fool Damien on the other side of her, he ain't still in one or two hats. So she don't notice. This nigga still in the whole damn rack of hats. I'm like, nigga. If the bitch look back and see the whole rack empty, she gonna know your ass still in, Rod exclaims. Patrick, Rod, and I bust up laughing, imagining Damien walking out of the Von Dutch store with his jacket carelessly stuffed with merchandise. Rod continues, obviously we went in separately so they don't know we together. It is 11 a.m. Sunday. Rod and I walk into the Von Dutch store on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, California. The merchandise starts at $60 and goes up to about $1,000. Sharon Osborne? I inform her as if she doesn't know who she is. And you are, my dear? She replies, reaching out her hand. Rod pulls out his color personal digital assistant, or PDA. Can we get a picture? Rod asks. Sure. Sharon Osborne replies as though it is her privilege. She puts her arm around my waist and smiles with her large, unnaturally white teeth. Infrared that to me, I say as we sit in the car. Wow, Beverly Hills. I guess this is the place where you would run into a celebrity, I continue. We should rob the Von Dutch store on Melrose. The freeway's closer, I advise. And there's a back street we can have the car waiting, I add. Having finished casing the last location, I start up the car and drive off. The next day, we sit in Patrick's basement reviewing possible strategies. I don't think all four of us can steal at the same time without one of us being noticed. If you have four young black guys come into a store all at once, they'll be watching at least one of us, if not all of us. They got cameras in there, so they're going to know it's us. I say we just grab as much shit as we can and run out, I say. Patrick Oliver is a middle class boy who never portrays himself to be anything other than what he is never poking out his chest or pretending to be a tough guy, a brown-skinned black boy of about five feet, eight inches tall with short, even hair. Fuck it, confirms Rob. I look around and everyone nods and gestures with agreement that this is the final strategy. Being that Patrick is the most straight-laced among us and he is providing the getaway car, we agree that he does not have to go in the store. So we gonna grab as much shit as we can and split it evenly? I question. 
We drive past the Von Dutch store on Melrose and turn left into an alley just past the store. Patrick slows the car to a stop halfway down the alley. Uh, Take a left into the other alley right there, I point. Uh, Don't you want the car right here for as soon as we get out of the store? Questions Damien. If the employee follows us out of the store, I don't want them to see what car we get into. I reply, yeah. Patrick agrees as he starts up the car. Patrick pulls the car into the other alley and turns it off. Nigga, turn the fucking car back on. You need to have this shit ready for when we get out here, Rod explains. We all laugh thinking about how this is out of Patrick's element. Y'all ready? I ask. Shit, nigga, I do this, Rod says with exhilaration. All of the passenger doors open simultaneously and four of us get out walking toward the store, all dressed in regular street clothes. The four of us enter the Von Dutch store together. The store is very neat, well lit, and has no customers in it. Hi, welcome to Von Dutch, says the saleswoman. She is a white brunette in her late 20s wearing blue jeans and a white Von Dutch t-shirt with yellow print on it. A few of us respond and then we begin shopping. We're all nervously looking around at one another to see who is going to pop things off. Damien strikes first, scooping up a few stacks of t-shirts and a number of hats and then bolts for the door. I should have planned out the signal for us all to strike at the same time. On Damien's cue, we all start grabbing merchandise and sprinting for the door. Hearts pounding, we turn the corner into the second alley, running toward the old black Volvo that Patrick's mother gave him. I hopped in the front passenger seat, Damien and Rod hop in the back. Oh, where this nigga at? Where Rob at? Roderick laments. Fuck, Damien said, shifting in his seat, looking back. We wait 10 long seconds. Robberies are best when quick. The longer things take, the greater the chances of capture. We sit in pregnant silence with our necks turned backwards and our eyes focused on the corner. Uh, Man, uh, we got to go, Patrick concedes, trying not to be too forward about his own self-interest. We all turn looking at one another. Crazy Rob is my homie. Everyone is waiting on me to give the word to leave him. I look into their faces. I share their anxiety. I cannot have everyone go down. Quet, Damien urges. I'm looking down in deep thought. Maybe I should get out and check on him and tell Patrick to drive everyone else off. Bang, bang. We turn to see Crazy Rob wrap his fist on the car window a third time. Patrick nervously takes three seconds to click the unlock button to let Crazy Rob in. Crazy Rob hops in. Bloodless dip. Patrick shifts to drive and punches the gas. He drives nervously through small, congested, pothole-filled Hollywood streets. Once we get to the freeway entrance, I turned around to look at Crazy Rob. Nigga, what the fuck was you doing? Man, man, that bitch blocked the door before I could get out. I wasn't trying to knock the bitch out, but the bitch put her whole body in front of the door and wouldn't let me out. So I told the bitch I'd knock her ass out, but she still wasn't moving. So I flinched at the bitch. She ducked, but she didn't want to get out the way still, narrates Crazy Rob. That bitch brave, interjects Rod. Yeah, blood. So I just grabbed her dumb ass and threw her out the way and then I beat up, Crazy Rob explains. I'm not thinking he did the right thing. No need to add an assault case to the rap. That stupid bitch thinks she owned the store. About to get her ass put out over some t-shirts, adds Damien. We go straight to Patrick's basement and divide the merchandise equitably. Can I leave some stuff here? Damien asks Patrick. You ain't trying to have moms asking about it, huh? Patrick teases. End of chapter. The black box. This is a short one. Part of success in youth is due to one's ignorance of what they cannot or should not do. At age 16, I went to the Von Dutch store on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, 
casing it for a robbery. Audacity. Thankfully, I thought it wiser to rob a different location. No, I am not promoting crime. However, I am promoting audacity. Always go for the best. Go big. Bridget, what are your thoughts, questions, comments on that chapter? I think it shows that you guys were young. It You planned this robbery, but you didn't fully plan it, obviously. <laughs> and some of that could be in part to greed. And I think we all know that greed kind of can derail anything. So yes. Damien was greedy and grabbed a bunch of stuff and ran against your very loosely planned robbery. Low-key, Damien might have been the smartest among us to, to pop it off, right? Because as I said, the quicker the better. Um, but you're, you're right. That was a hole in my plan. And that wasn't properly my skill set, you know, like staging robberies. I kind of just thought through the logistic of it. Uh, but it was, it was actually my first robbery. So, yeah, that's probably in part due to the poor planning. I mean, after that, I feel like I would plan better robberies. Um, so And have everyone on the same page. That's critical. Um, the good thing is that we all stayed together. We made it out of there without a scratch, which is truly a blessing. And, and one of the major reasons I don't recommend people engage in crime because it almost never happens that way. Next chapter. Pick a side. I walk into my first period Spanish 2 class on Friday, February 13, 2004. Three portly, quiet, studious Mexican girls sit in the front row. The most outgoing of the three, Maria, is their leader. She takes every opportunity for a laugh. Maria has hazel eyes and a genetic predisposition for her fat to root to her arms and stomach, which accentuates the slimness of her legs and the flatness of her chest. But she is a real sweetheart, a motherly, warm girl who appreciates genuine attention. We have a mutual appreciation for one another as she delights in a good laugh and I take every opportunity to crack a joke. I sit in the front row next to Maria. Maria, why do all the girls have hearts pinned to their shirts? I say smiling. Marquette, because Valentine's Day es sábado y también if a girl talks to you, she has to give you her heart. Maria says, oh, I reply. Maria unpins her heart and hands it to me, smiling warmly and looking at me with her large, attractive eyes. I accept a heart with her name on it. Her friend, sitting on the opposite side of her, slaps her shoulder, saying, It's just first period. You already lost your heart? Her friend is a slim Mexican brunette with freckles and bright pink lips. You know I love Marquette, Maria says. Maria laughs and covers her blushing face. Her friend unpins her heart and reaches past Maria to hand it to me. Maria slaps her shoulder. Bitch! I love him too, Maria's friend says as they both crack up laughing. You have to pin the hearts on your shirt now, Marquette, Maria advises. Oh, okay, I reply. I pin the two hearts on my chest. The day is delightful. I spend the day flirting with all of the pretty girls. This day is only unique for the hearts that they pin on my shirt, each a feather lifting the peacock among, above the pigeons. Some girls, like Rashida, I didn't even need to talk to. They would just see me and unpin their heart and hand it to me. I go to work in higher spirits than usual. Today has been a good day. Quit, I hear as I enter Allendale Elementary School through its field. I see Cheney, half janitor, half hustler, waving me over about 30 yards away. We embrace. What's up, I greet. You heard about old boy, he asks. Nah, I say. DFAT's locked up. Supposedly he is playing with his gun and accidentally shot his bitch. 
She was pregnant with his baby, killed both of them on accident, supposedly. My eyebrows raise in acknowledgement. That's one less thing on your plate, right? He says, true that. But what about the other one, I ask? You don't want those problems. Let that go, he advises. Good looking, I say. We embrace and I jog over to where the kids are playing. All right, hit the line. Five, four, three, two, one. I call out as all of the children in my after-school program sprint to the white line painted onto the blacktop playground. Hands, hands at your side, eyes forward, feet forward. Such a beautiful thing to see all of these small children trying not to laugh or smile while they stand like little soldiers. As I walk by inspecting the line, I see their large eyes watching me. Ring, ring. I click the silence button without pulling my prepaid phone out of my pocket. Well done. I congratulate. Children beam with pride. Yeah! A white girl in the first grade celebrates high-fiving a black boy from her class. Bailey, let's get this exercise going. She is a pale girl in the third grade with freckles. A short, dirty blonde, bowl cut, thin lips, large cheeks, and bright blue eyes. This girl really loves me. When I arrive to work, she outruns the other kids and tries to hug me, but I always stick out my hand for a handshake. Where I walk, she walks. With me... Excuse me, with her, my word is law. She obeys my word and polices the other children. She is a strong-willed girl, a guard dog, and a pup at the same time. She tries to spend as much time with me as possible. She feels free and confident in our after-school program, and the teachers opt to speak to me instead of her mother for disciplinary matters. Her biological mother has been dating females since splitting with Bailey's father. Okay, line up for jumping jacks, she yells at the top of her lungs. The kids move quickly to arrange themselves into five columns, each 11 kids deep. Bailey is competent. I trust her to run this whole program in my absence. I marvel at her confidence and joy. My phone begins to ring for the third time. Hello? They just jumped Damien. Corey, fat Corey says frantically, come on, we got to get them. They still here, he urges. Who? I say calmly. Donnie and Tony, he replies. I'm conflicted. Donnie and Tony are Patrick's older brother's friends. They heard about what Damien did to Patrick. They clearly did not agree with what happened. Neither did I. Marquette, come on. They're still here, he pleads. In any other situation, I would fill my heart up with rage and run over there full speed and do my best to give Donnie and Tony my worst. I would leave these kids unattended and risk losing my job without thinking. However, Damien is receiving the consequences of his unjust actions against someone I believe to be our mutual friend. With regret in my tone, I said, I can't leave these kids. Fat Corey hangs up. What Damien did to Patrick was not right. I will not interrupt the justice being delivered. Upon returning from our strong arm robbery, Damien chose to leave a portion of his Von Dutch merchandise in Patrick's basement. As Patrick's older brother often has many guests in the basement, Damien's loot was stolen by an unknown person. My assumption is that Damien did not want his mother to find the stash and question how it was acquired. In retaliation, Damien showed up unannounced to Patrick's house. Patrick was home alone. Damien knocked on the door and began punching Patrick in the face the moment he opened the door while Rod video recorded it. That was not right. The black box. Fat Corey never said a single word to me after that phone call. Damien is his cousin, Fat Corey. For Fat Corey, whether Damien was right or wrong, he had to be protected. For me, there were two factors. One, Patrick was not responsible for Damien's loot. He was doing Damien a favor. Surely, he should have been a better steward of Damien's property. However, if Damien's stolen goods get stolen without Patrick's consent, Patrick may be negligent, but he's not responsible. 
He was not being paid to guard the belongings, nor did he enter into a written contract to protect the property. It was a favor from Patrick, allowing Damien to leave his property in the basement. Sometimes things go wrong. That does not warrant the overreaction that Damien had. The beating that Damien got was merely an eye for an eye, an equitable response from the physical violence inflicted on Patrick from Damien. And we have a little more. It will chip away at a piece of your heart to lose a friend like Fat Corey. I was sad for a time and sincerely miss my brother. However, this too was a part of the path driving me to greater things, people, and circumstances. The nature of life is change. So fuck Fat Corey. Life goes on. I must now view him as an enemy though. Damien, on the other hand, we remain cordial. The nature of life is rerouting. Uh, Bridget, so you just heard about this story in the black box. you have any thoughts, questions, comments? I think a big thing is it just shows how stubborn some people are. So mm. Fat Corey won't even talk to you, but Damien, who actually was the one that got jumped, <laughs> right. talks to you. So it just shows the nature of people and how everyone's different. That's a very meaningful insight. And that always did strike me that, you know, I maintained a decent rapport with Damien after that. No hard feelings. And I think he understood my position, too. Corey, I think, maybe didn't really fuck with Patrick. Perhaps that was the case. But regardless, Corey definitely didn't fuck with me after that. And in that phone call, I didn't quite have the, the maturity and the presence of mind to explain to Corey at that moment, hey, I don't condone what Damien did, so I'm not about to help. Um, you know, I think Corey had known me long enough to know that I wasn't scared or I wasn't with the shits. Um, but whatever the case was, for whatever reason, I didn't come and help out. Um, to him, that was a, a cardinal sin. And to this day, like, we don't exchange words. There, there's no friendship. There's zero love. I will be reading the next chapter, Man of His People. Today is Friday, February 20th, 2004. The morning announcements come on over the loudspeaker. Happy Friday. Teachers, please plan to have your class in the gym by 10 a.m. for today's Black History Month assembly. A voice commands from the loudspeaker. The planned part of assemblies are generally boring, but at school like this, you never know what one of the students will do to spice things up. All right, quiet down, says Dean Black over the microphone. Some of the staff and teachers support him with index fingers over the mouth making the shh sound. Following a few housekeeping items, the assembly starts with a clown dancing performance by Patrick's older brother, Andrew Oliver, and his friends Omar, Donnie, and Tony. It is a rarity the school sanctions hip-hop music blaring over the speaker system. The students go wild for the performance, myself included. They have skill set, they have skill and talent. On behalf of the yearbook committee, I am going to announce the who's who for this year. You can just stand up after your name is announced, says Chelsea Scott. A noteworthy silence fell over the usually unruly crowd of students. Though most high school kids do not know who they are, high school is all about who's who. Best-dressed boy, Marquette Burton, Chelsea Scott announces. I stand up briefly and sit back down. Chelsea, a senior, did everything she could to get this designation for her younger brother, Philip, a junior. She had her boyfriend from another school lending Philip clothes, and she even asked people mm -hmm. to vote for him when she was going around to collect the ballots. It did not work. As a part of turning around our school, a uniform policy was implemented. Well, at least attempted. 
The school had trouble getting compliance from upperclassmen like myself, considering that we had already been at the school two whole years without any uniform policy. The ceremony continues with the people we all expect at receiving their due. Best boy smile, Marquette Burton, Chelsea Scott announces. What? I am caught off guard by this one. I never had braces and my teeth are imperfect, but I will take it. She carries on with all of the more important designations, but ones that are less interesting to us, most likely to succeed and all that. I was definitely not in the running for that one. Today, we are also crowning Mr. Irresistible. Please come up to the stage to receive your crown once your name is announced. Drum roll, please, says Chelsea Scott. The auditorium begins to rumble with the sound of a thousand feet stomping on the bleachers. Marquette Devon Burton, she announces, as though she is happy to say it. Dean Black shakes his head like this motherfucker again. I get up and step down the stairs as my people commend me. That nigga got hoes. Player, player, pip, pip, hooray, pip, pip, hooray. A few students shout out. Two girls in the associated student body place a crown of hearts on my head as my peers applaud. I then strut back to my seat as Staying Alive by the Bee Gees is playing in my head. Dean Black takes the podium. This month of February, we recognize our heroes who fought for civil rights, not only for the black people, but for all people of color. The students talk over him uninterested in MLK and Rosa Parks' talking points we have been hearing since the second grade. He continues, The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People has an annual Martin Luther King essay and speech contest. We are so proud that this year the first place winner is a William Blair High School student. The students quieted a little more as it does surprise us when anything respectable is associated with Blair. I want to invite that student up to give his award-winning first place speech, says Dean Black. Marquette Burton, please come to the podium. The initial clapping is mixed with a great deal of surprise chatter. I hear, Oh, hell no. Nah. This nigga giving speeches? This nigga thinking Martin Luther King? Get him, quiet, my nigga. I retrieve my speech from my backpack. Then the clapping increases as I walk to the podium. Now at the podium, the audience is dead silent. I did not warn anyone. I did not know what to say to my friends. And I did not truly believe the school would actually let me speak in front of the school. Well, here I am. From the outside, the one who they called the hustler, the bully, the cool kid, Mr. Irresistible, best dressed, best smile, is about to go nerd. If a nerd was about to give this speech, we probably would be joking and talking over him. But this is unexpected, so they wait in complete silence. I begin. There are a few white kids at my school, but not enough that I see them every day. This means that 40 years later, part of the dream is still deferred and that there's much work for our generation to do. I orate. They are still listening. I'm surprised no one has yelled out. I close. We have not had to sit in or stand up. We have not had to march or suffer beatings. To a large degree, freedom is in hand. But what will you do with it? You have more civil rights than your grandparents did. But will you vote? We have better schools than our grandparents had. Will we be better students? Martin Luther King was one man, and he did his part. I leave you with a challenge. Now that freedom is in hand, what will you do with it? My peers roar, celebrating me. That nigga D, preach! Today was certainly one for the books. I think as I walked back to my seat inside my own head and hearing only my own thoughts. The day went by smoothly. My teachers looked at me a little differently for today, at least. I had to work on a natural high. When I work with these kids, I know that I am making the world a better place. I give these children structure and values. They return to me genuine affection and pure love. 
A brown-skinned black woman in her early 40s with short-permed hair approaches to sign out her children. Hi, how you doing? I'm Marquette, I say as I extend out my hand. Marquette, she says with surprise. Oh, I heard about you, the middle-aged black woman replies. Yeah, I'm a legend out here, I confirm in my typical monotone. I hear you be over at Blair acting up, she says, pausing afterward to see if I would bite. I remain silent. I was in the teacher's lounge at lunch after you gave your speech for the NAACP award. Miss White busts in there saying, no way in hell that that kid wrote that essay. Then, Mr. Franco said that your standardized test scores are some of the highest in the state of California. Mr. Franco got you back, she said. Marquette is the smartest kid at Blair. Then Miss White said, he's a thug, the black woman reports. I realized the imperceptible beginnings of a frown creep into my poker face upon hearing Miss White drag my reputation through the dirt. I do not say anything to this revelation. What is there to say? Seeing that I had nothing to say, the woman sticks out her hand. I'm Miss Smith. I'm the new algebra teacher at Blair. My daughter Lindra submitted an essay to the NAACP contest, too. It sounds like Blair ain't no good for you. And if Miss White is right, you ain't, good no, you ain't no good for Blair, she says, chuckling. She continues, my daughter attends Westridge, but she is studying to take the proficiency exam to test out of high school. If you are as smart as Mr. Franco says, you should, too. Write down your number, she asserts. Ha, ha, ha. Nah, I'm good, I rebuff. Boy, give me your number, she says in a I'm a black mom that's not taking no for an answer tone. I turn and look at our kids, now assembled to head out. The older child, Amiko, whom I believe is in the fifth grade, is looking straight at me like, I know you're going to give it to her, so why are you wasting your time? Her son, Johnny, a third grader and an excellent basketball player, is looking at the ground, embarrassed. Boy, give me your number. Blair ain't no good for you. If you are as smart as Mr. Franco thinks, then you can test out, she says. The black box. Sometimes we are fortunate enough to experience a moment in which society tells you who you are. The society told me that I was a highly respected member among the people I cared about, my peers. Some of the teaching staff may not have liked me, but the students loved me, and the votes reflected that. We are not rewarded for what we can do once or twice, but rather what we do consistently. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act but a habit. Aristotle. Would you believe that Chelsea Scott intentionally found me during physical education class so that she could take my best dress photo in my PE uniform? She did not do this out of hatred for me, but rather frustration that I was the only one in the way of her family earning more status. Having family is very helpful in achieving goals. Family gives you unwavering and sometimes unwarranted support. I have never had this, but I seek it. I have always had to make things happen on my own. I earned the best dress designation. Even after the uniform policy was implemented, I would still come to school looking like a rap star. The procedure was that your teacher would send you to in-school suspension so that they could provide you a yellow citation that would document that you have been assigned Saturday detention and are to be allowed to go to the rest of your classes. I went to in-school suspension one time. While there, I convinced a security woman to give me a stack of the yellow citations. She's an older black woman who is so obese that I have never seen her anywhere but in the chair inside of the in-school suspension office. So I would show up every day in my own clothes and write myself a citation in the morning to show it to all my teachers before they could send me to in-school suspension. I say this to say, every day I was fresh. Will is unstoppable. Focus always finds a way. Best smile, that was nice. Mr. Irresistible, that touched my heart because I have a deep respect and appreciation for females. So to have an award voted on by females made me feel good. By the time I gave that speech at Blair, I had realized that I have a powerful voice. I gave my winning MLK essay speech at a venue in the city weeks earlier. 
At that time, a very well-to-do retired speech coach approached my mother and told her that I was the most impressive natural talent she had ever seen and that she demanded that my mother bring me to her house for free speech lessons. It was an extraordinary experience being in a stately home for one-on-one instruction with a very wealthy, older white woman. I was being prepared for destiny. The end. Well, Bridget, thank you for reading that one. Um, what are your thoughts on the chapter, which was quite a long one, and the black box? Men of his people, what are your thoughts on that one? Well, you, you, the, the girl that came to find you in PE class, you said she didn't do it out of hatred for you, but I think that's 100% hatred, not necessarily for you, but for the whole situation. And again, it goes back to show how people are. There's no need for her to do that. It was foul. It was very foul. And I'll definitely never forget it. And for me, it highlighted the fact that you you got to have your supporters around you. And you also want to be aware of who doesn't support you. And you don't want those people who don't support you to be in positions of power, which she was. Although the fact is who I was was stronger than that little bit of power she had in that system. Yeah. So she didn't really adversely affect me, but she did immortalize me looking raggedy as fuck in the Blair yearbook, which I don't have a copy of, but I'm sure somebody has a copy of it. But yeah, that was dirty. Yep. Now, any other thoughts? I think the biggest thing, again, the other teachers that still didn't like you, it's the nature of people. They feel the way they want to feel, whether it's warranted or not. That's a really good point. So it really shows that once you know who you are, you got to keep going, right? You can't let things slow you down. Life promises challenges. People won't like you. Some people think you're stupid when you're not stupid. You just got to deliver the goods. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you uh, for reading that chapter. You ready to read the next one? Sure. Oh, aren't you kind human being? Okay, so this next chapter is entitled bear with me folks bear with me big booty barbara big booty barbara bbb that's the title of this next one is big booty barbara all right bridget marquette a female voice calls out skinny Corey and i are strolling colorado boulevard in old town pasadena this is a typical weekend night for us. I turn from my conversation with Skinny Corey to lay my eyes upon attractive but unfamiliar Latina of 16 years old. She smiles, showing all of her teeth, appearing to be genuinely excited to see me. Without hesitation, she steps forward, hugging me tightly before I can say anything. She has a sweet face, a brunette Latina with long bangs, dimples, high cheekbones, and well-sculpted eyebrows. What's up? I greet questioningly. As she hugs me, Corey takes an angle to get a better look at her backside. His face lights up at the discovery of a gold mine. She releases me from her embrace. Standing five feet, four inches, she looks up at me. Marquette, you don't remember me? Can't say I do, I say. I look her up and down playfully. I don't know how I could forget you, I confess. Barbara? From Eagle Rock, she says. My eyebrows lower, wondering if she is one of Kevin Cox's girls. Eagle Rock Elementary, she adds. Oh, no wonder. You definitely didn't look like this then, I clarify. How you know my name, though? I question with suspicion. I went by Marky in elementary school. 
Ryan and them always talking about you. And I saw you last time you came to Eagle Rock. Hi. But there was a lot of people crowding you, so I didn't say anything. Got you, I confirm. This is the homie, Corey. I say, introducing the two of them. She shakes his hand, smiling too big. The old heads say never trust a big butt and a smile. You down here, Dolo? I inquire. Yeah, well, actually, I'm trying to get home back to Eagle Rock. Can I get a ride? She solicits. I see why she was so happy to see a familiar face. Can you shoot her to the house? I ask Corey. Is she your fam? It ain't nothing, he confirms. Let's dip, I affirm. We start walking to the parking garage. What are you doing out here? I question Barbara. I was visiting my boyfriend, 50, she states proudly. Halting, who? But Corey and I grimace. She stated his alias as though his name rings bells in Pasadena. I ain't never heard of blood, Corey asserts. His name is Frank, but everybody calls him 50 because he looks like 50 Cent, she explains. I smirk at her and we continue walking. Leaning forward from the back seat, Barbara asks, do you know the community arms? Of course, it's a large housing project. I always wanted to move into the projects because of the basketball court and the many kids that live there. There is a sense of community. When you live in low-income, detached Section 8 housing outside of a project, you are a poor loner. There is no natural community or gang to be a part of. Yeah, we know the snake pits, but nobody know 50. He bang, Corey inquires. He's blood ain't active, Corey interrupts. Seeking to move the conversation from gang banging, I ask. The little homie couldn't shoot you to the house or wait with you at the bus stop? I mean, you said that was your boyfriend, right? Sound like he think you a flea-eye-ipper. Corey and I chuckle. Barbara laughs with us, but only due to the discomfort brought on from being confused by the slanguistics. What'd you say? Flea-eye-what? She inquires. Yeah, a flip. You don't know what a flip is? Corey asks in a condescending tone. He looks back at her for a moment and then turns up the radio. Barbara is of a common type, fascinated with the black rapper and their dangerous ghetto lifestyle depicted on television. She seeks out the closest imitation of what she has seen on television. For her willingness to contribute her body and or finances, she is, willing, she is able to capture herself a real-life ghetto black male gangster. However, she fails to understand that in real life, dealing with those operating in the underworld often has adverse consequences. Having sniffed her out, Corey turned up the radio as we both knew that she would clamor on in meaningless conversations, seeking to prove that she understands our culture. The second song to play is Twista's Overnight Celebrity. I hear Barbara speaking from the back seat. I turn on the music. What'd you say? I ask good-naturedly. I said, I gotta wear apple bottoms. They're the only jeans that fit me. I tried other ones, but my butt is way too big, she gloats. Corey immediately pulls over to the side of the 134 freeway. Blood, get out, he orders. Blood, get out, he raises his voice, still looking forward. On blood, get out my whip, he exclaims as he turns around to look Barbara in her eyes. What, she says alarmed. On the freeway? Really? For what? I turn and look at her face. I then look at Corey. Marquette, she pleads. Turning back to Corey, she continues. We're almost there. Please just take me home. On the B, don't nobody want to hear about your apple bottoms unless you're trying to come out them. You said you got a man, so just shut up and ride. Damn. I allow a moment for that lesson to sink in, and then without emotion, I instruct, pull off. We eventually pull up to a park of manufactured homes, definitely one of the poorer parts of Eagle Rock. This your spot? Corey asks. Yeah, I stay with my grandma when I go out because she lets me stay out late. We all get out of the car. Thank you, Marquette. It's so nice seeing you. You should hit me up, Barbara says as she comes in to hug me. I intentionally keep my distance. Despite her suggestion I hit her up, I don't ask for her phone number. She stated that she has a boyfriend, so I'm going to give him a basic respect, being that he is not here. 
Only an animal seeks the woman of a man who is not his enemy. And more importantly, he and I do not have any beef. There is no profit in starting a problem. Thank you for the ride, she rejoices to Corey with a friendliness that would make you think she was not about to be kicked out of his car on the freeway just five minutes ago. My problem has often been respecting individuals more than they respect themselves, which is often more than they deserve. My grandmother, a southerner, a Baptist Christian, taught me to show everyone respect. That was foolish teaching. She goes in to hug Corey, leaving no space in between their bodies. He reaches down and squeezes her large, perfectly shaped derriere. She holds on to the hug while he does it, and he initiates the release of the hug. Bye, she says, waving as she walks away, switching that fat thing back and forth. I could have grabbed the wagon as well, and she would have been fine with it. However, I'm not going to do that. It is not who I am. Conversely, Corey is a gangster. Gangsters are ruled by their emotions and, des and desires in the present. Oh, I'm a tell 50, I tease. She turns, running towards me. No, 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 Marquette. Please, she pleads with her eyes wide open. I'm messing with you. I don't know, little homie. Don't nobody know that nigga and Dina. You good, I confirm. You're not going to tell him, she questions. Nah, I do not know him. I say as though she is still learning English. Okay, she says as though her mind is struggling to accept the verity of my words. Corey and I hop back in the whip and start back to Pasadena. Man, bruh, that bitch got shook when you said you tell Frank. You think that nigga be whooping her ass, Corey speculates. I can't call it, I respond. The black box. I've actually yet to write this black box. Um, but I would definitely put something in there about being cautious of people's intentions. Clearly, when she saw me and got all happy, it wasn't because I'm Marquette Devon Burton, the saint and the sinner. It's because the bitch wanted a ride. And there's a great multitude of raggedy-ass bitches who want a free ride in a fancy car. In that case, I'm always happy to help someone out because I truly do appreciate and respect females and I did want her to get home safe. So I was happy to do her that solid. But she presented a familiar problem at this time in life, which was essentially chicks who are involved with other people getting in your face and essentially setting you up to have problems that you don't need. And that was like a recurring theme, as you'll notice in the book. But as usual, I curve that bitch to the side. Um, so those are kind of my immediate thoughts on this one. Do you have any thoughts? I was about to say there's a lot of women giving females bad names. Talking to other men why they have a man. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, uh, hey, Chris Brown told you these hoes ain't loyal. <laughs> <laughs> he told you. Um, you ready for the next one? Sure. Did you have any more thoughts? No. Yeah. Okay. All right, Fantastic. All right, folks, we're continuing on this journey, putting in so much work for you. This chapter is entitled, God Speaks Spanish. Ten minutes after class starts, the school counselor, Miss Coco Williams, walks in to inform us that she would be having short advising meetings in the hallway outside of class. Every five minutes, the student will return to class and let the next person know it is their turn for advising. Eventually, it is my turn to sit down with the fortune teller. Coco Williams, an Asian bull dyke dressed in her typical male gym teacher outfit, gives me a stale smile as I sat in the chair next to her. She opens a large binder of printed academic records. Burton, she says as she flips the pages. She stops. I see my name printed on the pages. Burton, comma, Marquette. Coco runs her fingers across the page, tracking my grade point average over the two and a half years I have been at Blair. She sighs. No college will take you with these grades, Coco says. There is no disappointment, only disdain in her face. 
Breaking the silence, she questions, why do you even come to school? There is the pure love of a mother, and then there is this, the complete opposite, someone who would not expend the energy to dial 911 if you were hit by a bus right in front of them. I look back at her puzzled as I try to quickly gather my thoughts. My grades have been decent. What is she talking about? You can just stop coming to school. You could get as you could get A's from here on out and it wouldn't matter, Matthew, she says flatly. Matthew, I say confused, raising her voice. Yes, Matthew, he's next. You're done. I get up and walk into Spanish class, shocked and numb. Matthew, it's on you, bro, I say. I sit in Spanish class, dead silent for the remainder of the period with my eyes on Mr. Craig. I am walking around in my head, asking myself, what am I going to do? Since I was eight years old, my mother has been telling me that I would have to leave home at 18 years old. Up to now, I just figured I'd go to college. My phone rings as I walk out of class to lunch. Yo, I greet. Talking on his speakerphone, Ryan exclaimed, Quet, we right here, man. I need you to crack this girl, nigga. I know you could crack her. She says she don't fuck with niggas, but I'm like, you will fuck with Marquette, though. Ryan is at Eagle Rock High School during their lunch hour. Yeah, I could crack her. I say, I needed this call, something lighthearted to take my mind away from Coco Williams and how she took away my hope for the time being. I don't think so, says an unidentified girl. It sounded like she said it with a smile on her face. Who's that? I questioned. That's Tiana, bro. That's the one you got to crack, Ryan says. Yeah, I'll come cracker. What she look like? I question. Sir, she is thick, sir. She run track. You feel? She pretty too, Ryan explains. For sure, set it up then, I say. Bet, Ryan confirms. What you getting into tonight? I ask. Shit, he says. For sure, I'm going at you. One, Ryan says. I had considered getting emancipated before so that I could live on my own before turning 18. My mother being intermittently on drugs and constantly on alcohol made her hard to get along with. However, when I did the calculations on how much money one had to earn to live as an adult on their own, rent, electricity, telephone, etc., I knew that as a 16-year-old, I could not get a job that would allow me to pay for even a studio in Southern California. Since then, I always figured I'd go to college. After all, that's what society suggested we all do. When I arrived home, I could see Coco's unconcerned face looking at me like I was a piece of shit. I do not know, I do not want to be alone with my thoughts today. I call the homie Roderick to see what he is up to for Friday night. Rod, what you getting into? I say into the cordless house phone. Shit, trying to get this fatty? Roderick replies. What you trying to do? I say pushing things to the next level. Shit, I'm down for whatever, nigga. I hit a lick. Rod assures. I laugh at the idea of 15-year-old Rod pulling an O-dog and menace to society. I hear someone laughing in the background. Where you at? I'm at Danny's. Tell him to swoop me up so we could run a mission, I say. The three of us sit in my bedroom brainstorming a money-making scheme. We can rob some hoes on Sunset. They got a lot of cash on them, I suggest. My uncle used to go down there and walk around squeezing their booties and beating up their pimps, Rod says. Danny and I erupt in laughter. Y'all niggas think it's a game. Some of them pimps out there don't be playing, he warns. Yeah, I ain't really trying to dip all the way to Hollywood anyways, Danny says. Well, we need to go somewhere where people got some bread. So we damn sure can't shit where we eat, so we got to get out this motherfucker. Shit, we could hit up Glendale. Danny says, for sure, I confirm. Danny is speeding on the interstate 
134 West and his brother Michael's Mustang, we get out of the car on Broadway Boulevard near Glendale Galleria. Rod takes the initiative. He begins quietly skipping toward the target, waving Danny and I to come forward with him. A large public transportation bus has pulled away after dropping off a middle-aged Mexican woman in her late 30s. Suddenly, Rod breaks into a full sprint. Danny and I pursue. We run down the street that is busy with cars, but no pedestrians. Rod seizes her purse in stride. His stride is broken as she grips the strap of the purse. What? She's trying to pull the purse back? They're on opposite ends of a tug of war. Danny and I stop running and we look at one another. I fear how this can escalate. The seconds feel like minutes as Danny and I stand flat-footed watching Rod yanking the purse away more vigorously. With a final yank, the purse comes free uh, of the woman's hand and Rod flees. The three of us run nearly side by side, Danny and I laughing. Nigga, you could have pulled that purse from that old ass lady? Danny teases. That bitch about to get hurt, Rod says, chuckling. <laughs> she was strong as shit, huh, Rod? I joke. We take a left and hop the fence to get in the car. Nigga, let me drive. I know your ass gonna be driving like Patrick, Rod says. Rod fires up the engine and hands Danny the purse. Man, this bitch got $35, he laments. She was holding on to the purse like it was her life savings. Give me that. I say, snatching the purse from Danny. I go through the purse knowing one does not risk their life over $35. I find a few receipts for sending small amounts of money to Mexico. There are three losing scratch and win lotto cards and a bus pass. I unzip the compartment within old, within the old cheaply made purse. There's a piece of lined paper folded up. I unfold it. It is a handwritten poem in Spanish entitled La Poderosa Mano de Dios. With my very broken elementary Spanish, I'm able to read and understand this poem written completely in Spanish with perfect clarity. As we ride in the driveway car on the 134 East, I read it aloud in English. Nigga, shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear that shit. I don't want to hear that shit. Nigga, that's bad karma. Danny roars. Marquette, you sick, dog. What the fuck is you doing? Rod adds. He shakes his head, pointing at me with his thumb as if to suggest, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? I toss the purse out of the window as we speed down the freeway. The black box. I was disgusted with myself taking something that was some taking something from someone who has nothing. Why did she fight so hard? Maybe that $35 was all she had. Why did she fight so hard? Maybe because it was hers. Whether it was 35 cents or $35,000, regardless, I knew that God was speaking to me in Spanish. I had arranged with Mr. Craig that if I could get everyone to complete their worksheet for the day, that he would allow my friends and I to shoot dice in the back of Spanish class as a result. As a result, I knew no Spanish, but somehow the words on that paper and the meaning was as clear as day. God was speaking to me. God was a light and understanding. God was a light. My sight was clear and I was able to see that I was wrong. I decided to give up doing wicked deeds. No more drug dealing, no more robberies or purse snatchings. Why? I'm despicable. 
That is what I thought silently as we rode back to Pasadena. There are times when you must acknowledge that you are despicable, that you have reached a moral, physical, or financial low, and most importantly, it is all your fault. You have to open yourself up to the truth, feel the low, be disgusted with yourself, and then take all of that emotion and invest it back into being the best of who you are. No, I did not rip the purse out of the hands of this poor immigrant woman. But I did participate in the overall crime of robbing a woman that was merely walking down the street after a hard day of work. I will not be this way anymore. Um, the other part of the black box I should probably add is about what the poem actually said, which was pretty much entitled like the power of the hands of God. And it says, you know, God's hands hold me when I feel lonely. Uh, God's hands protect me. And it was just going on and on about how, you know, this woman was in God's care, which was ironic because we must have been some fucking devils because apparently, you know, God wasn't looking out, or, out for her at that moment. But I found that to be an extremely uh, disturbing and transformative moment for me. Thoughts, questions, comments, Bridget? One, I think obviously I know you personally, so I know kind of how your life has turned. Mm -hmm. But as a reader, I'd really be wondering, is this truly a turning point and are we going to see a different Marquette? Um, but it, it's good that you gained that self-awareness and really saw who you truly were. And sometimes it does take an act like that that makes you kind of feel down about yourself to see who you are and to turn things around. That's a good point. And even when you say who you are, when I really think about it up to that point, having been raised in a criminal family, my all, all of my friends being criminals, such at such a level that we don't even think of it as crime. You know, we call it putting in work or we call it by some euphemism. But never do we consider it to be crime or a bad thing. Uh, so, you know, I was pretty deep in in that, you know, my mother, my family condone my criminal activities, obviously, as well as their own. So it was a major point for asking who I am and what I want to be about. And now the readers can see, is there a new Marquette blooming? Right. And, and you know, that's a really important piece for me to highlight in the black boxes. I don't think civil people understand that in ghettos at some level you're raised with a criminal ethic to where it's not even crime like you know it, it's it's just a way of life it's hustling um and i think that's why there's but such hustling in the terms of like selling drugs is different than hustling in the terms of robbing a little migrant woman well, that's the whole point. If you're a hood nigga, like, it doesn't really matter as long as it pays. Um, just you know, generally speaking, when you're in that mentality. But I, I was coming out of the mentality. Got it. Um, not to say purse snatching was ever my thing, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it was like what pays, right? And that was the straightest line, shall we say? Um, next chapter is a short one that appears to be incomplete, entitled "One of My Mothers." <laughs> 